and welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only book club podcast that always slams half a bottle of champagne immediately before pressing record. I'm fresh off my half bottle, Amanda. Are you as well? Of course. Yeah. And and accordingly, we've run up one hell of a tab over here on this podcast. We should probably start some kind of fundraising campaign soon to fuel the habit. <laughs> The champagne campaign. Yeah, the, the champagne. That's always been my dream since I was a middle schooler listening to um, really a wide variety of rap music, sampling mm-hmm. rap music from all across this great country. Yeah, it's been my dream to be on a champagne campaign. So, And to do it in the name of Oscar Wilde would, I think, just be doubly flattering. It's my destiny. Yes. We are making maybe crass allusions to an alcoholic person who is Oscar Wilde. If you have no idea what we are talking about, that is because you are listening to a book club episode, specifically the book club episode for Wilde in America, and this is part two of that. If you have never read this book before, you've stumbled upon probably the wrong episode, as today we'll be discussing the second half of that book by David M. Friedman and analyzing it, discussing anything we want, all of the topics and pages and everything is available to us. If you don't know who we are at all, we are, as I mentioned, the Lightly Literary Podcast. I'm Travis, joined, as always, by Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Hello. Follow our social media feeds. We have a Facebook page and an Instagram that are active and post reminders about the books we have coming up and the episodes we've posted. It is at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word, and it's the same on both platforms, so follow us there. Like and subscribe on any podcast platform of your choice. I think we're up just about everywhere I'm aware of, so, you know, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, whatever. Follow us, like, subscribe, tell your friends and family. Maybe not about this one, though, because Oscar Wilde is a bit of a, bit of a, I don't know, I've, there's so many words that come to mind. I was going to say raunchy <laughs> something. Pick a noun. <laughs> I don't know. If, not, I was going to say philander? I don't like a party man? I don't know. Who knows? Maybe the right words will come to me later. Hopefully they will in the episode. Any... Items of business, Amanda, before we get started, is your champagne flute filled? It is. It's ready to go. Fantastic. Well, let's talk <laughs> about this book. We like to, for nonfiction works anyway, and Wild in America here is a nonfiction account of Oscar Wilde's time in America. Oh, I, I thought I called it not Wild in America. I thought I called it something else. At any rate, <laughs> we're going to begin by updating our cocktail party quotes of fitting enough segment title for this book and for Wild the Party Man. Um, this is just when we give some quotes from the book that we thought warranted further discussion. It could just be something interesting or thoughtful or even something that we didn't enjoy, just something worth talking about. Amanda, why don't you start us off with a cocktail party quote? Sure. This one is from page 134. The interview is a distinctively American invention. The consensus is that the interview did not become a regular feature of American journalism until the 1870s when mass circulation newspapers began to target a literate but not especially learned readership that expected to be entertained as well as informed by the penny press. The best way to reach that fast-growing audience was to present American life, the seemly and unseemly, as a never-ending show. So I mm-hmm. pulled this one because I thought it, I I don't know much about journalism. I never uh, studied it or anything like that in college. That was not one of my classes. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought it was interesting that the concept of an interview, which we see constantly in media, but that was something that was just 
so brand new and so apparently American <laughs> mm-hmm, to the right. 1870s. And I was just like, what? Was it really? I just, I don't know. I guess I assumed that it had been around a lot longer than that. But And the origins are compelling as American too, because it's, you got to find a new market. Who isn't, who right. isn't buying magazines or in that case, I guess, newspapers, but who, who can we get these penny press prints out to that who's not interested currently? Yeah. You're just always trying to tap into a new market, right? Right. Right. And, and it is, I do remember reading or hearing that with newspapers and magazines, like the target audience, you, you want it to be like, was it like fifth grade level reading ability or something like mm-hmm. that? Yeah. So. I think that's pretty commonly understood as well. Even yeah. there's a teacher focused application or website called News ELA that a lot of teachers use to do nonfiction studies with their students. This was popular when I taught middle school. And News ELA can tailor the news sort of up or down based on Lexile or reading levels. And I think a lot of those News ELA articles kind of came in naturally, maybe like seventh or eighth grade level. And then they could, I think you could even have it sometimes push it up and it would swap some vocab for words that a newspaper would not normally deploy, but it sort of mm. could artificially increase the difficulty. I know you could artificially decrease it too. And so, yeah, but I think middle school, somewhere in that band, it's pretty commonly understood that that's what you yeah. aim for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got intellectual magazines and such, and there are institutions, media institutions that do long form things that I'm sure would not qualify or register. I mean, we steal from the, not steal, of course, but we quote from the New Yorker frequently when we do the criticism section. So that would be we one do. where, <laughs> yeah, would probably register a bit higher. And so, but yeah, you'd be surprised how they tend to like write down instead of up, which I think if you're looking to read something for two minutes and just understand some news of the day, makes some sense to me. Yeah. And part of this quote, too, is um, the idea of the seemly and unseemly American life as a never-ending show. That was really interesting to me because that screams to me that it's like the beginnings of the the tabloid culture that we Mm -hmm. currently live in. (laughs) Of course. And I don't think... Now, my knowledge of U.S. history is not expertise level by any definition, but I don't think there would have been even a period in American life where this could have been accomplished. Like, I don't think the the interconnected commerce networks pre-Civil War were, you know, robust or sophisticated enough to make this, to make a national star even a thing. <laughs> there was no right. intercontinental railroad, you know? <laughs> so I just, it seems like he struck upon the perfect moment in time to make himself a celebrity, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great one. And, you know, it definitely connects to broader issues of our day for sure. Um, I Well, let me just finish then. Well, do I want to pull that quote? I pulled a few. I was going to pull one of the, the ending about, you know, sort of the author's final commentaries on celebrity and the influences and sort of his legacy. But I'm going to pull a quote in a moment that I thought was even more difficult, despite it getting very little time in the book. From my page 255, this is the fate that he had with his lover. Is it Bosi or Bossy? Bozy is how I was pronouncing it in my mind. Yeah, I'd never seen this name, and I didn't know of this person, so I'd, yeah, I'll call Bozy. But anyway, the quote is, Paris would be the setting for Bozy's final act of cruelty. Just before his father died in early 1900, Douglas achieved a reproachment. 
As a result, he inherited nearly 20,000 pounds, the equivalent of 2.2 million pounds today, or $3.6 million. When Wilde dined with him in May, he asked him if he could find it in his heart to give him some money. And this is a quote from Wilde. When I spoke to him of this, he went into paroxysms of rage, followed by satirical laughter, and said it was the most monstrous suggestion he had ever heard, that he was astounded at my suggesting such a thing, and that he did not recognize I had any claim any kind to him. Wilde wrote to Ross, and then a later quote basically said, he essentially said like he had promised we when we were in love that he would atone in some way the ruin he had brought upon me, he would take care of me, incessant offerings of his life and belongings, and so it's just a final you know act of betrayal by this person who also kind of helped get him into prison, you know, indirectly, of course, it wasn't like he was yeah. in the trial, but it was through that relationship and the falling out of it that that happened. And so I suppose I there's a lot to unpack with this and why I enjoyed it. I would be lying if I didn't say I find a kind of ironic, harsh twist that harsh, not amusing. I know this is a person's real life, and so I don't wish I didn't I would never wish harm upon Oscar Wilde. But to see someone who had such, you know, insights into humanhood, personhood, character, to have such biting regard and sort of be so so socially aware this is also the author gets at this kind of almost paradoxical thing in Wilde's mind which is he so observed social conditions and so perfectly understood certain social things but ultimately couldn't see his own failings in any way and that's kind of mm-hmm. our modern understanding of celebrity is that idea of such inflated delusion almost where you understand everything but yourself and it was sort of this one person the closest person to him he it was the one relationship he couldn't seem to understand he one more time you know was betrayed and so i don't know it's it's a pretty cruel ending for wild in the book and pretty harsh but I, you know thematically i don't know it just felt thematically resonant to me or something again i didn't read it in glee but it i you have to kind of just nod sadly at how it concludes for wild yeah that's it was heartbreaking to read that part and i was just like oh i really hate this guy <laughs> this bozy guy yeah but um, he did, I think Friedman did a good job with <clears throat> tying it back. He he mentions, he, I guess, like foreshadows in some respects, yeah. um, the 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 end of Wild's life and the misery that he feels at the end there throughout the book. And right. um, at first I was like, why does he keep mentioning this? Like, what's going on? And then when I got to that final epilogue, I was like, oh, okay, I see why he did that. Mm-hmm. It even called into, not question, but it made me think back to some of the decisions the author made in including different meals, how Wilde would dine in these grand ways, and, you know, he could be excessive in his spending and excessive in his lifestyle. And, of course, then in the final epilogue when he decides to describe the prison conditions and how horrific it was, it's just such an incredible downfall that you can see how it spiraled him for the rest of his life, essentially. It took, Mm -hmm. you know, just to go from the heights to the lows, the just utter pure, like, tragedy of it all is, yeah, I could see how it would, you know, bend, kind of bend him mentally for the rest of his life and irrecoverably break him down it seems but yeah it it was a i don't know it's hard to call those endings like that satisfying but it felt very fitting with the thesis and everything and i it just to see someone a lover of of like pure beauty to see sort of like unfiltered love be his downfall in a sense like again it was the 
to for someone who's dedicated his life to theorizing about what is beautiful of course that ties into love quite a bit to then see it like he couldn't understand his own relationship you know he was naive about about the one thing he like spoke his whole life about it just yeah i don't know it had an extra layer of kind of tragedy to it that for someone who you know was a speaker of love it he just i don't know as it so happens in relationships intense ones too you are blind you're the most blind to it or something yeah that's pretty accurate and the author t friedman at the at the very end the very last two lines he says the best way to understand wild's death is not medically it is metaphorically the culture of celebrity he brought to life rose up to take his yeah so that's pretty fitting as well, just tying that all up really neatly. Yeah, it was a bit of a cut of an ending, too, uh, for someone who I think spent a lot of the book, I think, being fair to Wilde. Uh, in the criticism I'll bring up later, the author thought he was mostly complimentary to Wilde. I don't know if I come out quite so clear on it because of just the it seems like no newspaper attack of wild went unpublished in this book it just seems like he was reaching for all that research that he had done and you know it's Mm -hmm. good research but i i yeah it felt like a pretty bitter ending but i suppose there's no positive way to paint the end of wild's life penniless alcohol alcoholic and just desperate for any anything any meaning so i yeah i don't know how else you'd spin it (laughs) it doesn't there's probably no romanticism in it yeah. Yeah. Any other quotes for you you want to discuss? Sure. Um, I pulled one from uh, page 247, and it, um, it makes mention of Matthew Arnold. I don't know if you studied <clears throat> any of Arnold's works mm-hmm. in Not college. Much. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I'd encountered him before, so this stuck out to me. But uh, Matthew Arnold declared in 1864 that the aim of criticism is to see the object as in itself it really is. Wilde insisted the esteemed Don got it backwards. The ultimate aim of criticism, he wrote, is to see the object as it really is not. He was asserting the creative function of the critic, the writer who uses the work of art he or she is studying as a starting place for his or her own imagination. The higher that imagination soars, Wilde said, the better the criticism on some occasions the work of the critic even surpasses the work of the artist. So this stuck out to me because I was like, oh, that's an interesting take on on the purpose of criticism, literary criticism, art critics, all that stuff. I I thought that was really interesting about how he takes it and kind of says that it is to actually feed the creative juices of other potential artists and Mm -hmm. writers. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, this is a complex point that I've maybe not thought and articulated about, but because I enjoy both things so much, I I have thought about them at least a a good amount about why I maybe enjoy, you know, when I see a movie or finish a book, I rush to find criticism of it or see if I can find an article about it or just digging around for any analysis of it. I guess I just find that to be the joy of art to me in a simple sense. I just like to know that there are other approaches or angles or criticisms, and I just like to track all that down to see what it opened up in people's minds or something. And mm-hmm. it, there's also this the deal that I think for a lot of people, 
if you start to approach art from a any critical lens, it be, can become, I don't know, intimidating or imposing maybe. There's a lot of language you have to acquire to feel like you're doing it right, quote unquote, whatever that would mean. But with criticism, it's almost like you're getting a little guest pass or something, a little sneak, especially if you're not doing it professionally yourself, right? You're almost, it's like having a guiding hand or something, which I think, mm-hmm. I don't know, I just really enjoy that experience too, almost as much as, again, like, you know, seeing the art or, you know, the movie, reading the book, whatever. So, yeah, I think, I don't know, I don't know if I would agree with Wilde's thought there. I'd probably have to read that essay or something to dig into what he was getting at there. But, no, I think it's a completely valid point and a fascinating one, too. I'm not sure where you come down on it. Yeah, I was thinking about it, especially since uh, you and I, we're not necessarily critiquing the things that we read with this podcast, but Mm -hmm. we do offer our own insights. So we are almost like critics, right? We're Mm -hmm. more positive than what I guess a lot of people would assume a critic would be. But um, I was looking at Wilde's point too and thinking about like how that would apply in our situation. And I was like, you know, it's true. A Wilde does make a point because like the things that we've been reading, you've been doing art pieces for. Mm-hmm. Right. So you yeah, are right. actually using it and, and, and being creative with it, too. And then I've been doing the drinks as well um, with my um, Instagram stuff. So mm-hmm. I've got that kind of creative thing going on as well. But it does, based on our experiences and our understanding of these works, we, we are reinterpreting that and re remaking it into other creative pieces as well so i was yeah. like that's that's actually pretty insightful of him to point that out yeah i think i guess where i would come down on it is that i find all of that really wonderful and beautiful and yet part of my mind will never let go that the that the, the inspiration was the art so it comes first kind of a thing it's sort of like a mm-hmm. you know it's the same reason i'm so rigid in book clubs like like this or for fun about being all about the text you know we start off with quotes you know we're digging in like i i just feel very rigidly that way and so i guess Mm -hmm. yeah i think i don't know i love the endeavors we've taken up and everything i think they're wonderful but at some point too i i would come i don't know it's i don't want to make it some binary thing but i do come back and feel very grounded in the thing that was i want to like respect the thing that was made but i you know we've made stuff too i guess you know maybe it's like a spiral of some kind or something but yeah. Yeah. I don't think that one or the other is correct. I think they both make really good valid points because another aspect of what we do is to provide evidence for the points that we, we bring across, like uh, Mm -hmm. the quotes that we, we bring up. So we are trying to see what the text is for what it really is and, and striving to understand purpose and, and stylistic purpose and stuff like that. So, but also providing in in understanding it also forces us to to be creative in our understanding sometimes too yeah for sure we we can call ourselves wild uh i don't know what's the, what would the adjective wildians i don't know yeah <laughs> Acolytes, that is wild, what it is yeah wildians yeah <laughs> no completely I, and i think i know you mentioned our, our own endeavors here earlier but i think i would i would hope that our podcast would be not aggressive, considered aggressively critical or analytical, but I at least yeah. hope more than casually. So that's the whole. <laughs> this isn't yeah. <laughs> supposed to 100% be an off-the-cuff, freewheeling chat about did we like this book? Obviously, we've structured it to be not that completely. You know, we have our fun and deviate when we want, but it's no. I think that even the purpose of this would be something 
analytical in nature, you know, critic, you know, critical in nature. But of course, yeah, you know, it's just this. This is the media that's popular today. It's the media we wanted to play around with and stuff. I still think I respond. I still like reading things on a page, and I think it allows me to process things. But the podcasts I go to, I think, are in this zone too, where it's it is being critical. There are an- insights given. There's perspectives, maybe even historical, but also it's free wheeling, and you know it's not edited really. Uh, we do some editing mm-hmm. here, of course, but it's broadly speaking not edited down, and not there's no drafts. I guess is the key thing. We're not revising this afterwards, so. Yeah, I think that's it's a kind of a medium in between them, I suppose, between yeah. you know, response and criticism or something, whatever those the differences in those things would be. Um, I'll throw another quote out there. I think I'll do one that I think warrants a, maybe a lot of discussion and then one that's more of just a enjoyable observation. On 148 in my book, Wilde, I believe, is talking to a newspaper, as he does for 95% of this book. <laughs> if newspaper <laughs> archives did not exist, this book also would not exist. That is certain. That's true. <laughs> uh, that's 90% of this, especially the back half of the book. Anyway, he's talking to the Salt, uh, Salt Lake Herald about, you know, just his performances and speeches and stuff. About money-making specifically is the topic. They're, they're kind of getting after him about his fees and if he's making a lot of money. He says, I am quite conscious that much of what I may say may be annoying, but after all, I came to America to say it, and so long as an audience with such a breeding allow me to strut my brief hour upon the stage, I should be singularly stupid not to take advantage of the opportunities given me. The strut my brief hour upon the stage line was inspired by a passage from Macbeth. It's fascinating to note, however, that Wilde omitted the next line from Shakespeare's tragedy. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, and signifying nothing. And then later, Wilde wrote to friends new and old, and he's just talking about the American press, and he's frustrated by them. A man of his education, upbringing, of his proud intellect, you know, he wants to be considered a serious, rigorous academic. I mean, he, first of all, he must have known the illusion. There's just no mm-hmm. way he didn't, right? right? We can assume that. And he, I think he does, too, right? Friedman kind of hints that there that he believed he knew. I would think, right? Yeah, for sure. So, it does. What does Wild think of himself? (laughs) This line sent me into a tizzy. I don't. I mean, we know he's pretty self-aware. We know what his mission is in this. Again, at least as the author lays out the thesis and kind of the study of this book, we know that Wild is aware of his celebrity and his mission and his goal and everything like that. But do you think he views himself as an idiot with nothing to offer? I mean. There's no way you would use that line and then not know how it ends because it's one of the more famous soliloquies in Shakespeare's plays. Yeah. I I, <laughs> I looked at that quote and I just kind of like laughed. Like perhaps it's him kind of throwing down the gauntlet to see who would pick up on that reference and who would Almost, yeah. point out yeah. the the omitted line there, um, who would call him out on that. But um, yeah, he had to know the latter part of that quote as well. But um, yeah, I think what he was really focusing on as well was the idea of the stage. And I, I thought immediately of that idea of the persona, the, the outward facing persona. And perhaps that was a comment on that. Right. But so, but then was he a nihilist thinking this whole thing was a, a waste of time? I mean, it's, he must've had at least a modicum of belief in his lectures. Right. And I, I've never right. read broadly into his nonfiction. So I don't know what his philosophies actually were versus if this whole tour was a, a fake and he only had half an idea that he was just kind of selling for fun, but he surely 
believed at least a bit in what he was talking about, right? He must have. I don't... So I know that he... this. It's just such a... I don't know. It's like another layer to the onion that I'm not convinced has a core. I think the author presents a fair enough thesis and was, I think, well-proven and well-rounded and everything. So I don't dispute the book. But just a line like that, it's just another example of... We know he likes to be fun, make fun with illusions and play with puns and all that. And so undoubtedly, that's what he was doing. I'm almost certain you're right, where it was just, let me plant this out there and see if anyone is smart enough, you know, on my level, see if they'll notice, haha. Mm-hmm. But then <laughs> to say that about himself... But not be self-aware enough to know, or, you know, if he was so self-aware, then he must have known that he was just calling his whole project, like, a totally hollow thing. And just mm-hmm. acknowledging the own shallow, his own shallowness and sort of meaninglessness of this entire endeavor or something. Because of the way that line ends, I don't know. It was, yeah. was it the only moment where Wilde was self-critical? And can we even call it that? Yeah, that's such a, I don't know. I, I so... I, I believe that he did believe in the aesthetic movement. I think that he, I think going to America, I don't think that he actually believed that he could impart the, or sell really the idea of the aesthetic movement. So perhaps that yeah. is the part where he's kind of poking fun at himself. He's like, ah, these people aren't actually going to do it, right? He has such a, a low view of... Right, right. Um, Americans and their ideas and philosophies and stuff, right? He kept pointing out how they're all commercially driven. They're consumers um, yeah. rather than real artists, right? So I think that if there was a nihilistic sense in that, I think it was just about the Americans, but not about the movement in general or about others who who partake in that movement. Okay. Yeah, I, that seems like a valid reading. I yeah, this line was a real perplexing one, and it definitely froze me in my reading tracks when I read it, and I wasn't <laughs> sure how to parse it. I was actually surprised that the author himself didn't grapple with it for longer, other than just to give a quick little reference and kind of move it along. So maybe I'm just drastically overreading it again. We know Wilde was just playful in everything he tried to say. He tried to yeah. m- enrich it with some literary thing, <laughs> technique, or, you know, and that's just a simple illusion. But. I just couldn't remember any other moment where as long as you know the end of that one pretty famous line, like that's not hoity-toity to know that line for sure. That's not going to blow anyone. You're not, if you're at your literary cocktail party, no one's going to bat an eye at you knowing that line. And so right. just knowing that he would have known, calling himself a tr- yeah, just a hollow nihilistic, this is all meaning, it just it felt like the only real moment of self-criticism I, that I could remember anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's anyway, a very strange moment for me. It struck me. The other one I'll briefly discuss, the other line or, you know, moment, was with the coal miners. I thought it capped off probably the most fun moments in the book or the most fun, most fun passage or, you know, section of the book, that chapter, where he's really you know, partying hard in San Francisco and keeping up and out drinking everybody. And he was like a world-class, you know, his world-class party credentials were not faked. You know, he was just wanting to (laughs) imbibe and eat and celebrate and be social. Like he just, you know, he really just enjoyed the partying. But the, so the, the picture, I think here it is, where is it here? On 204, I believe. Another fine sight awaited him in a small room at the bottom of the mine shaft for there Wilde was met by a dozen miners. 
All of them were seated on stools at a wooden table, each with a liquor bottle in front of him, in a musty, damp space with an earth floor, its ceiling and walls supported by wooden struts and planking. The room, redolent of crushed rock and the aroma of recent dynamite blasts, was lit by candles held vertical by iron spikes hammered into the mine's walls. Judging from the photographs, it's likely that several of them had removed a candle holder from the mine. And then at the end, here are the great line where it's uh, they're talking about the meal, which may or may not have happened. I believe his quote was, uh, Wilde wrote, The first course was whiskey, the second whiskey, and the third whiskey. And so, you know, that's they just got up to the, <laughs> the busy drinking <laughs> life of miners. And perhaps, you know, we can always sour all of these readings with that he was probably feeding his alcoholism. That seems almost mm-hmm. definite uh, at the time. So, yeah. I don't know. Not much to say about it. Just the end of a joyful little moment in the book where it seemed like his tour was going well. He was living wild. People were generally receptive, but still critical. Again, the author goes out of his way for sure to include every attack from a local paper, I think. He found all the great ones. I can't, cannot fathom that there's another one out there undiscovered, right? <laughs> like, surely not. <laughs> the I also enjoyed the uh, that particular scene because I was just like, oh, that's so funny, and like how and and even his um, letters about that particular town, right? Like the from his own perspective, he was like, man, that was a fun time, and like they were so great, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, it reminds me too of when he went to um, San Francisco and that uh, that club. Like they were gonna play a trick yeah. on him, and they just tried to get him smashed so that they could right. play a trick on right. him, and instead they all got trashed. And I he was moment. the only one who like was able to walk home like totally fine. I was just yeah. like, damn. <laughs> yeah, I appreciated the moments where he could kind of walk the walk, talk the talk, and everything. And you know, yeah. one of the most admirable kind of overall through lines of this whole book, and I think there's a chapter dedicated to this idea or this concept but essentially you know wild and i'll I'll never think of him different the same way again after this book like he was a bullshitter and accomplished nothing before this trip Uh, but but (laughs) a true grinder and didn't flake on shows put in the work i mean you can say it's you know whether you want to critique the life of a lecturer is difficult or easy whatever that's a different argument or something but i admire that he his persistence is unquestioned for sure and i think at least i like that line i give about Macbeth. i don't know what he actually believed who knows maybe but it seemed like he believed enough in the sort of i want to see all the world and encompass all the beauty and i believe in the aesthetics it seems like he actually went out of his way to experience the world and was not that was not bullshit to him he was actually getting out and doing things dangerous things rare things and it all yeah so he was really taking it all in and it seems well documented so you can't i'll hold many criticisms of him in my mind now having read this book but at least in my literary like literary history mind (laughs) or something but Mm -hmm. that is one thing that i'll always remember too is that he was just he really was immersed in the humanity of it all. So I respect mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. He definitely, <clears throat> despite all the criticisms levied against him, I, I definitely saw him as somebody who was just enjoying life. And I was like, yeah, man, yeah. live it up. <laughs> yeah. Especially when contrasted with, you know, the, the author constantly pointing out that, that the end of his life is so tragic. Right. Right. Yeah, this uh, it, it is almost like he built his entire thesis argument, you know, book project around 
when was Oscar Wilde's life maybe less complicated and horrible? <laughs> yeah. I guess the yeah. other period would have been when his plays were succeeding and he made, you know, like almost a million dollars in a year or something. Yeah. Selling crazy. Selling plays. Yeah, he was yeah, hugely successful. Okay. Any other cocktail party quotes for you? Nope, I'm done. Excellent. Yeah, let's end on that positive scene. Him just absolutely wasted in his absurd outfit with a bunch of miners a hundred feet below the earth. <laughs> just nice. a really potent image, you know. That's worth drawing. Maybe I'll draw that one for the for the pod or something. I love it. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all right. Let's move now to the imaginary essays. This is the more analytical part of this episode, where we each give the other person an imaginary essay to discuss and then you know prep for. I've done zero prep. Because I'm just burning out over here. I've done, I did no prep for this, and I was very late. Too to much film. champagne. Yeah, geez, I did the whole <laughs> bottle, and now I'm just vibing, just flowing. But yeah, so Amanda has prepped a little. I gave her question about two days too late, and I have not prepped at all for hers. So we're, I'm going to off the cuff this 100%. I've never done it this way before. We'll see how it goes. Nice. But anyway, yeah, we've prepared some que- a question that the other person will attempt to answer, and we'll kind of analyze the book through that lens amanda should i do mine first since it's going to be bad yeah let's do, you, do it okay. I, i'm interested in okay. hearing your yeah. response so go ahead and throw it at me whenever you feel <laughs> whenever you want to sure um i went i feel like with the most obvious question um in the prologue friedman writes that oscar wilde created the value system we now call celebrity culture this is how he did it Mm-hmm. This is, in short, Friedman's thesis. Do you feel that he provides adequate evidence that Wilde created celebrity culture? And what is the evidence that he does present for this argument? Well, that's a, that is an interesting way to put it, the creation idea. I think he created it insofar as you can say anybody created something unknowingly, which I think in cultural and social arguments is much easier to make than in like the sciences or something it's hard to say that mm-hmm. it's hard to say that henry ford accidentally made the model t or something although although those things actually do happen scientific stumbling you know upon something but so we know he didn't conscientiously do it and and call it what it is and there hasn't there hadn't been study of it yet but there are a couple of moments i guess that would stand out of enough self-awareness the money issue for example when i the quote i pulled from the macbeth thing uh, that he was having a conversation about the money aspect and we know i think friedman laid this out well he was aware of the finances they partially motivated him he took that extra two weeks in canada because of you know the potential to make more money and everything and so mm-hmm. that part i believe i don't know if he created that but i believe that he was aware of the money making schemes enough to think let's get that sorted first and I'll make good art later. I would also point to the passage to America on the Atlantic, right? He's coming over. He's supposed to prepare his lecture beforehand and didn't. So he knew full well. He had planned the trip, accepted the terms, and knew the work before he did any of the work. That, to me, sounds like someone who knows the project they are embarking upon, unless... I don't know. I mean, this seems harsh to say too, but unless he was really just an unstable, self-deluded kind of alcoholic, like just partying on the ship and thinking, even if it, even if I prepare nothing, I'll just, I'll just kind of hang out over there. I'll, I'll have social connections. I don't know. That seems like a harsh reading. So I'd rather, it seems given his capabilities, you know, his time at Oxford, it seems way more reasonable to expect, suspect that he just believed he could do the work later. He just needed to get out there first, which 
that in some ways is celebrity culture, you know, to an extent anyway. I think that's our equivalent again, as we mentioned in episode one, was it's that's reality TV. Like before you truly demonstrate some remarkable talent or genius or whatever you want to phrase it, you kind of like get well known first for another thing. So mm-hmm. I, that he seems self-aware about the money he certainly did. I don't know if there's an aspect, I'm trying to think on the spot, if there's an aspect that I didn't kind of buy in terms of argument, or if there was a section that felt, I don't know, I, I guess, and this is just my reading of the way the book was written too, I thought the chapter near the end, the one about go to places where even if you're not wanted, while it made me yeah. respect Wild on a personal level and redeemed him a little for me, I, that chapter just didn't, I feel like there was no clear argumentation, and it was just a series of anecdotes about places he went where he wasn't selling out. So that whole aspect of, well, Wild kind of knew that he would just take the press wherever you can get it, you know, go places anywhere. I think it was just Wild had a passion for life and wanted to discover. And at that point, he had already had so much success that he was just kind of buoyed by it, it seems. I don't think that moment was... And also, again, it just seemed like Wild was someone who was not going to quit on this project no matter what, how many tickets were selling, right? He was just, he was yeah. persistent, dogged, and he believed in it. So I, the whole philosophy of celebrity is ju- just be in the news. Who cares how? Like, go to places where even if it's not happening, you got to, like, I don't think he went out of his way to do those bad, unremarkable shows. I don't think that was part of his design. But I think at that point, he was just grinding. And just, you know, once you've started and embarked upon something pretty successful, I mean, why stop? You know, (laughs) you're already here. So maybe that chapter, that chapter also didn't engage me, really. I just found it kind of boring anyway, Um, other than newspaper clippings, which are always funny. But yeah, I think that would maybe (laughs) be the one aspect of the kind of general project that I didn't find super compelling. I just don't know how self-aware he was of that part of him building up a celebrity around himself. Mm-hmm. I think the maybe one more off-the-cuff anecdote or memory now. There was a chapter about him entertaining himself, right? Or sort of the subject yes. is always you, and, and then maybe another chapter was you should always be amused by the thing you're doing, right? Right. I think the Keep fact that he, interested or something. I think the fact that he changed his lecture topics kind of back and forth and would flit in between them, and also the fact that he constantly engaged with local news and like would comment on things of relevance like when he made fun of the chicago water tower do you remember that little moment those two things combined right that he was changing the lecture series and would do other things he was trying to work in new things and the fact that he toured places aggressively and would try and give his aesthetic interpretations that makes me buy all that then it's kind of like make your passion seem sincere at least and pursue something you love it's the cliche we americans hear about you know work and especially if you want your work to be public work like it's the thing you hear all the time right never you know never hate your work and you'll never work a day or what's that expression i don't remember it but basically follow your passions right it's the thing we're sold so i think that part is pretty arguable too pretty clearly the fact that he was doing all of that and sort of unrelentingly so pursuing it that would be my short answer i think in general to answer the question simply i think yes he provides enough argument for creation i don't think there's quite enough to lay out that wild was aware fully of the you know ramifications and everything and i think that the coincidental part that the book doesn't talk too much about or maybe it does but just the fact that the national a form of national media forms of communication were just starting to be able to kind of pierce the nation quickly that all is the coincidental 
coincidental timing of it all, right? And he does make the yeah. point several times in the book to say, well, his you know his reputation preceded him because the news had already made its way west or south or whatever. And so that's just, I guess, part of the you know charms of historical timing or something. It's just in right place, right time, I suppose. So that's the freestyle answer that you get. <laughs> any, it's good. Well any done. Thoughts? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks. <laughs> High marks for, you know, I'll take a D on this last-minute paper. <laughs> Stayed up all night, you know, crushing energy drinks and just to get it in on time. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Any thoughts on, I mean, did you think that the evidence was compelling enough? Yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure about the idea of, like, the, the creation of celebrity culture. Um, I did, especially when he kept, uh, the thing that, that made me question was that he kept mentioning other people who kind of had already become almost celebrities. So then the idea of like celebrity culture is what versus just being a celebrity. That was the real difference in my mind, I suppose. Cause he had talked about yeah. like how Whitman did a lot of self advertisement. Um, and yeah. there was and another person in California that wild met that I don't remember. Well, and Whitman had a persona too that he put on right. that he sold to people to build up his image and just make his reputation grand. But the book even opens with examples of that in Britain too. The whole person that you could have your persona and then your person. But I right. think the the main crux of it, I mean the at least one of the main cruxes of like Wild doing something different is that he was an unaccomplished. Into he was smart, he was intelligent, and uh, had won a undergraduate prize. But I mean, really, had done nothing, and so that's yeah. the big that is the big twist of it all. Is could a person become celebrity without any noteworthy accomplishment in the field mm -hmm. he you know supposed was supposed to be in? Right? It's not like he it's not like he should said he should be famous for something else, right? He he was supposed to be a literary person figure. So right. that part I think is well sold. The fact that he got yeah. there with no lectures, I mean, that's what more do we need to know, really? He clearly embarked <laughs> upon this thing with no, he, he was not about the work. At first, he ended up being about the grind of the lecture series, though. Again, you have to have to respect the hours, you know, and the travel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's my answer. Let me throw my essay question to you then. My question for you, which I, who knows if you had time to prep for because I wrote it half an hour ago. But anyway, <laughs> question for you, Amanda, is before reading this book, I knew very little, in caps, very little about his life other than he, I thought he was a closeted homosexual man, but I, I guess he wasn't, though. I mean, he wasn't really. I, he was, right? I, I don't even know how, how we would describe that historically. Would, would he be described as closeted? It was almost like that um, don't ask, don't tell policy that right. was in, in the military, right? Like so, people, yeah. you could maybe tell, but like as long as you didn't ask directly because it was illegal. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> then, right, right. Yeah. So even that I didn't know. I even So I knew very little anyway. His reputation to me was almost 100% literary and because I had read some of his works. So uh, this book has changed my perception. I'll now forever have lots of new ideas and impressions after the book. So my question for you is based on all of that, and it's quite simple. Who was Oscar Wilde then? Yeah, that is a, a not a simple question, but... <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that one of the this book's purposes is to actually explore that idea. I know that his stated purpose is, is to argue that Wilde created celebrity culture, but I think that another... 
aspect of this book is to give us more insight into who Oscar Wilde actually was as a person as well. And I think that this book helped me to better understand who he is as a person. I mean, I would hope so anyway. Um, I guess I won't be able to really test that theory out. But um, <laughs> so right. I came up with like a list of things that I, I felt like this book helped me to understand about Oscar Wilde. Um, so the first thing that came to mind for me was that um, I think that he was someone who was searching for acceptance in a place in society. His very first acts, like the first chapters that we we encounter Oscar Wilde, um, his mom is like teaching him the art of, of being a, a great conversationalist and, and being somebody that um, is sought after in society. And then when he goes to... Um, Oxford, when he wins that scholarship and he works really hard to get there, he immediately tries to lose his Irish accent and and he hires like a, a, a dialect coach or something, right? And um, he's trying to fit in because right. the Irish were not necessarily looked upon um, very well. Um, during those days. And we also saw that in America when he went to, um, was it somewhere in Michigan where that was happening with the, the Irish parade, the Irish. Yeah. Um, I think that was in the, yeah. e- when he was on the East coast, but I truly don't remember, but I know what you, yeah. you're referencing. Yeah. So um, I think trying to fit in while retaining his identity and, and that ties in with the whole idea of like the, the public persona versus who he was as a person. Right. Um, so I thought that was a big aspect of him and really of just like humanity in general. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say he's also an aspiring, he was an aspiring and successful writer. He wrote, so many different genres, right? He wrote poetry, he wrote short stories, he wrote plays, he wrote a novel, he wrote critiques, essays, lectures. I mean, it's just everything. He just wrote everything and everything. I've read some of his nonfiction. I've read his um, short stories. I've read some of his poetry and he's, he was just great. He's brilliant. Um, Just wonderfully um, intelligent and an intellectual, somebody who, uses his brains to really think about something and, and to, to think it through. He's somebody who is, who ponders, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, which I find um, very admirable. Um, another aspect is um, I do think that he, he did believe in the aesthetic movement. I think that he, that was not something that was just a part of his public persona. I think that he was able to use that to his advantage, his great belief in this idea of like beauty in all things and to beautify everything. Um, I think that he really did believe that. And I think that when it came to America, he just didn't think that because to him, like the idea of like consumerism and the idea of like, he specifically talks about how machinery um, Mm -hmm. mass production of something does not equate to art or beauty. And yeah, he, he says like yeah. using a machine means that it is not going to be beautiful, um, which is like the opposite of what capitalism kind of is, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, so, I but I, I I do think that he was very earnest when it came to um, what he lectured on, um, 
which is why he was able to actually throw it together so quickly is because these are things that he had thought about way before. Yeah. That's a great Um, point. Yeah. So, um, I also think that he was a keen observer, like part of being so witty and, and to have all these like pithy sayings, like an aspect of that is like, you have to be able to know who's around you, what's happening, making notes of, of people's personalities and their actions and their behaviors. And then the reason that he was so successful as a writer is because he makes these observations and like points out the, the ridiculousness of certain behaviors and rules and, and things like that. So I think that he was also um, very observant and intelligent in that way. And I think finally that he was someone who was hoping to help along with a change in his society. So very much so Mm -hmm. with the aesthetic movement, that was, he was really thinking that like the aesthetic movement would be something that would help to shape some aspect of his society, of of society. But also when he was talking about when, when the author Friedman was, um, going through Wilde's um, Southern tour. Oh, yeah. And Some tough Wilde passages was mentioned. There. Yeah. And, and Wilde was talking about, like, comparing the, the ideals of um, the Confederate South to um, Ireland's plight. To, he, right, he draws right. the idea that the, the, the reason for secession with the Confederate um, South was that they just wanted like states' rights and they didn't want to be told what to do and blah 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 blah, right? And mm-hmm. he's like, well, in Ireland, you know, we were, um, it's it's the same thing. We want our own rights and stuff like that. Just kind of ignoring also like a major part of, you know, what was happening before the Civil War <laughs> and like all right. that. Well, it's just that that sentence is never finished, right? That's the issue right. with that, it's- right? It was about states' rights. To do what? <laughs> it's just right. it's such an absurdly simple thing to finish. It's re- You're right there. Right. <laughs> yeah. it, it really was that, too. I mean, it's, it's, something can be two things, you know? Anyway. Right. Just to quit. I don't, I don't know if we have any uh, listeners of the pod who are, are true daughters or sons of the Confederacy. I somehow seriously doubt it. <laughs> I also very um, much doubt that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and would honestly hope... I, I guess hope not. I don't know. I don't. I'm not. I don't think we need everyone as an audience member anyway. But carry on. Sorry. It's just yeah. I've, that whole part. It's you know he's spouting off in, in pretty high-minded rhetoric. Uh, none of which you can fundamentally disagree with, though. I think the act of historical comparative analysis would not hold up Ireland and the Crown to the South and the North. I don't think that would hold for very long. There's some like profound differences. For example, there was a functioning democracy in America at the time. So that's right. Makes the relationship pretty different at any rate, not to interject too long, but that, I thought that whole passage was, I don't know. I'll have a, some thoughts on that in a second, but anyway, keep, keep it going. <laughs> but, um, but my, my point being that he, by, by talking about Ireland and, and, especially since a lot of people perhaps didn't really realize that he was Irish, especially since he worked hard to, to get rid of his Irish accent, that he would have any interest in, in the rights of um, his people. He keeps calling Ireland like my country and like my people. And, and, and even though he 
wasn't seen as Irish in a lot of ways. But I thought that Mm -hmm. he was hoping to help along society, most obviously with the aesthetic movement, but I think that also with um, Ireland and and the plight of Ireland um, in his eyes at the time to to kind of call attention to that as well in America. I thought that was really interesting too. And I think that is a bigger part of who he is as well. You know, you've said so many excellent roles that fit the book so well. Can I offer you a couple simple ones that I'll always take away from this? And let me uh, give a forewarning. These are, these I'm going to hit you with some pop psychology here from a, from a non-psychologist. I, (laughs) he is the most maybe tragic extrovert I've ever encountered in a real life accounting. And I don't read a lot of biographies, so that it's just my knowledge gap probably, but I will never, he is a tragic figure now in my mind forever his desperate attention seeking I, I think this is underscored by a couple of things one but by the ending of his life of course you can't ignore that but also how this the scholar here unearthed so many contradictory quotes you know he would say one thing to the press and then lo- say another in a letter and vice versa mm-hmm. uh, did this man believe anything i don't it, it just baffles me the public dis- like and i find most celebrities especially if they're celebrities who sustain celebrity not through not through work because at least with work you have this like you can take pleasure in accomplishment and achievement and you produce something and like you have something to hold up you know but when you're mm-hmm. not doing that and you're also like doing attention seeking type behaviors I, there's just such a raw tragedy of that to me because I, you know as someone who tries to walk lines between introvert, extrovert, again, you know, pop psychology or whatever, I, I just find this level of it to be, it just seems like he didn't want to be alone. It's just one of those simple, tragic celebrities of like, this is a, like a desperately lonely person, it seems to me. And and it could mm-hmm. just be, I'm sure there's a books about how that would play in with his closeted and repressed homosexuality and how there were, I mean, it was literally illegal, right? So he's battling that mentally and i'm sure that's aspects of it the book really doesn't explore that in any way to be fair to the book um and at this point i'm rambling but i but get to get back to the initial thought i had anyway it's just he will always now seem to me to be one of those sad childhood celebrity type figures who just got a taste of fame and was so desperate to be liked by anybody Everybody, and that's even despite him, like he'll, he'll criticize people when he wanted to. He's very open and you know thoughtful and did his critiques, but it just the way the backhandedness of it and the way he would say whatever, I it I will just never think about him the same way ever again. And but the good news is his work is still remarkable, as you noted. Like I that also doesn't really change the way I read his you know his works, which I've enjoyed a ton when I've read him, but. Mm-hmm. I, he just it's just a tragic extrovert to me now of just epic proportions or something yeah I don't know maybe it's too harsh a reading or a reaction no, I, I think I think you're right there's uh, he was very hungry for that but I think that also relates to like I don't want to go too far into like you know my, my psychological analysis of Oscar Wilde but like I think the author specifically mentioned like the extroversion of his mother and the early teachings of his mother and the near absence of his father, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's got to play a part in, in his need for acceptance too. Yeah. I think, I guess it's just now granted, this is the, the amplification because of the imprisonment, the trial, all that, the downfall of it, 
the the amount that amplified this is so enormous that it almost this point almost is pointless but i'll at least casually throw it out there right when you base your life around what he was just extreme extroversion which at the time that you know partying social engagement social events bam 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 like he's never alone it doesn't seem like he wants to be alone right he doesn't like I, I, again, this is reading way too into it, but it's like, does he even like being with himself? I don't know. It, he just mm. has such an experience of being with other people, which obviously is the beauty of life, being with others, but it's just, to this level, seems like a sickness to me. But anyway, that compounded with the fact that the party always ends, right? This is what celebrities run into. Your time will run out, the party will end. At some point, the extroversion stuff that well runs dry and who knows when it would be for different people hugh hefner an example from our modern life seemingly never right he partied his way into the grave or whatever (laughs) i can't think of another figure who lived quite that way until they died in that way but that's just a odd example but the point being like it was always going to run out i guess for him again it amplified the ending amplified that and sped it to a um you know trajectory extremely fast or whatever but i don't know i just can't it's just always going to have a tinge of tragedy to me now when i think of him you know again i also didn't know how his life ended so i think that's just coloring my impression pretty enormously too because i just didn't Mm -hmm. know any of that but yeah it was i don't know i enjoyed the journey his wit truly unmatched his his work ethic the grind of it all i'll always remember that but the I don't know. To put yourself on a quest like this, I just, I don't know. I think it's also a personal reaction I'm having to. Any final thoughts on the on who Oscar Wilde was? Nope, I'm good. I hope he was a happy person. I don't know. That's I'm going to sign off with some corny sentiment there. I just, I don't know if he was ever happy. <laughs> Did he seem satisfied? I don't like who. I really can, hope who so. can ever I mean, know? At the end, there probably not. But right. I'm well, sure yeah, that yeah. at the height of his life, for sure. Yeah, I hope it was sincere satisfaction. I think there is real satisfaction, of course, some of the purest to be found in the company of other people and, you know, social, your social life, right? But it just, I don't know. I think we've seen enough examples of celebrity downfalls in our lifetimes, party-based kind of things that, I don't know, it just never seems like that. It comes from an entirely healthy place, but anyway... At this point, if you're listening, you've read the book, so I'm sure you have tons of thoughts on that, too, and it's well-documented, so that's my final thought on who he was. Um, And and again, any follow-up on that? Uh, No. No? Let's move to the Lost Pages. This is a brief segment we do at the end of a book where we just get to talk for a bit about something we feel like the author didn't explore enough or just something we wish the author went a little further with or included some more of. Amanda, why don't you start us with your Lost Pages? Uh, yeah, I just said that I would have loved to have seen more of Wilde's actual insights and, uh, and opinions about his American tour and more firsthand oh, evidence yeah. of Wilde's intent and opinions. Um, yeah. Especially since the thesis is that he was doing all of this um, in order to gain celebrity status. I would have just liked to have seen more of, of Wilde's actual like game plan almost or like his I would love to see more of the letters that he sometimes sprinkles in there from from Oscar but I I would love to read more of that yeah it's almost as if he had to call a lot of it into question since we knew he does comment pretty frequently when Wilde contradicts himself or at least when he he, I mean how many times did he insert a line in here saying like that was an exaggeration or that was a lie I mean Mm -hmm. it's pretty often so yeah yeah no I, I agree completely that's a great pick 
Any any topic in particular you wanted his insight on? Wilds, um, I mean. I guess just I would have loved to have seen more of his his opinions on on the people that he was visiting and stuff like that. Like we get some of those oh, glimpses, yeah. but I wanted to see more. Like I have Yeah. I have the impressions of America um pulled up for my next read when I have a moment. It's 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 up on Project Gutenberg for me so that I can read that because <laughs> of this book. Um but also just even with Impressions of America, um, Friedman points out that, yes, this is, it's available, and he did write it as a lecture to give in England, but that he exaggerated certain parts of that, too. Right. And I'm just like, well, how does he know? Like, what what evidence does he have? Like, what what is he reading that I haven't read yet to know that this is an exaggeration the, and stuff like that? I just, yes. I don't know. Parts of this are done with a scholarly confidence that only the footnotes could, because, you know, they're extensive, of course. And so I think right. we just kind of have to accept it. I mean, of course you can reject it, but that would then require, you got to go to the footnotes then, honestly, you got to do the work too, <laughs> which is fine. Right. That's a, Obviously, that's not our pursuit here, because uh, I'm not paying Amanda a salary, an academic <laughs> to like <laughs> take the next six months and cross-reference and come up with her own thesis or whatever. But, and so, but anyway, I think that is the answer because you're right so much of it is done with a, a scholarly air of confidence and there are certainly statements in here given that you'd have to dig into the footnotes to find exactly what was cross-referenced or, or what have you yeah on my lost pages i'll keep it brief too because i thought everything here every point he wanted to prove he did so aggressively and i think in that back half of the book maybe even too much like i feel like that final chapter really rambled before the epilogue i just didn't derive a lot out of that one for some reason but so I, I didn't think Lost Pages required much. I was going to kind of say what you said, which is just I wanted to hear more from his lectures and just hear more about his beliefs in the aesthetic movement. We, we get some insights, though. We get snippets about his views of some architecture, also his like weird weirdly specific home decor advice about wall not wallpapering or like not wallpapering the ceiling and just there, there's little tidbits in there that were fun. But yeah, just more of the... I just wanted more of the lectures, I guess, to see what exact quality. And again, it's there are th things in there for sure. I'm not critiquing it for having nothing, but like there's yeah. he. I remember at one point in the early lecture, I think the first one, right, when he comes out with his Oxford education, there's he mm -hmm. lists a bunch of names that Oscar used, but it didn't really say how. You know, I, I don't really know the arguments Oscar uh, Wilde was saying. I guess so. Yeah, I'm left wondering about that for sure. I wouldn't say it's a missed point given the thesis of this book, but it, I did wonder about it. Yeah, maybe that's on Project Gutenberg too. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, I'm his, sure uh, that. I mean, they lectures. must have been recorded. <laughs> uh, knowing yeah. how much he does about them, they must be written they must have had some kind of manuscript or something saved i think i don't know just an assumption i hope so <laughs> anything else missing from this one or was that it that was it for me there's pictures hey you know coming hey, hot off pictures. devil in the white city <laughs> always appreciate that <laughs> a nice addition was the mining picture in there i don't think it was altogether. no it was not yeah it's mostly just portraits and family stuff and and a lot of the ones from the photo shoot so yeah which, you know, I respected putting that in. That it seems like for wild scholars, that's a crucial moment, you know, how deeply mm -hmm. it was referenced. Anyway, let's move now to the final segment of the podcast, the critical assistance corner segment. I don't know what we'll call it, but the critical assistance. This is when we reach outside <laughs> of ourselves and go to a piece of criticism we found online or in print, I guess. I don't, do you have access to wild criticism in print? You probably do. 
I don't. <laughs> oh, okay, but not about this book. Anyway. I mean, you, you're, you surely you've got an annotated wild book somewhere in your home with yes, some criticism course, yeah. in it. What'd you say? Yes, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you have some in your home. You just don't know, you know, if it's about this book. At any rate, yeah. we find some things that are about the book we read and just talk about them. Amanda, throw out your criticism corner, critical assistance. Let's call it criticism <laughs> corner. <laughs> we're like the Barney program on this show. We're, we're a good blend of literary arts and Barney here. I think we do both pretty well. Anyway, um, start us off with some quotes from the thing you chose. Sure. I chose something um, from Publishers Weekly. I didn't see an author, but it's from Publishers mm. Weekly. And it's just called Wild in America, Oscar Wilde, and the Invention of Modern Celebrity. Cool. Um, it's It was a really short little article. I, I yeah. found it difficult to find something that was not just summary of Friedman's main points, but right. an actual discussion of, of yeah. what he was offering. Um, but this is what I pulled from this. Friedman provides more insights on Wilde's strategies on achieving celebrity than on the concept of celebrity itself. His claim that Wilde invented modern celebrity is overstated on its face, and it does not become more edifying once details are supplied. Wilde's nine principles of fame creation, around which Friedman organizes his chapters, are merely cliches about celebrity. Work the room. And none of them can seriously be attributed to Wilde. However, Friedman vividly chronicles the early part of Wilde's career, a little-known but crucial period. He may not show how Wilde invented celebrity, but he certainly shows how Wilde invented Wilde. Mm-hmm. So I pulled this because I thought it was interesting that he's that this person, the the author, is basically claiming that that Friedman did not actually um, provide enough evidence for his main thesis, which is why right. I asked you um, for the essay portion huh. about that. Um, but. I, I did agree with him that like the chapters, like the organization, they, they, yes, of course they're cliches. It's, I mean, it's celebrity status. Well, the, the thing is the it titles is of them are cliche. I didn't find yeah. the analysis within them to be like, I mean, the, I also the, the analysis the within analysis them is deeper cliche. than the title. <laughs> I guess For sure. I find that yeah. a really odd sentence where it's just like, well, yeah, I mean, the title's a cliche cause he's trying to make points about modern celebrity culture. So he right. deploys the language of it, but yeah, I don't. That's a weird criticism to have. Yeah, I also thought so. Um, but the the part that I did like was that w- when he pointed out that um, Free- Friedman chronicles the early part of Wilde's career, that it was a little known but crucial period. Yes, and mm, and yeah. pointing out that it was a crucial period is also like, well, why was it crucial? Because it helped to launch his literary career. And so it kind of does feed back into the thesis that Friedman was making anyway. But well, and I um, think the crucial part, maybe the the criticism could be then the epilogue is too rushed because he does tie it into the tragedy that befalls his life, maybe a little too simply or something at the end. I mm-hmm. you know about how part of his failure, Wild's failure, was the celebrity, his own ego in a sense, or his own self perception, kind of delusion of it. So. Mm-hmm. I could see a reading of that, thinking that he rushed to the conclusion or something, but I don't, I think it's kind of, doesn't this get back to the point that you and I almost, I think, agreed upon earlier where, yeah, invention is a curious word, 
I don't. Yeah. If he just said was an example of one of the fir- world's first celebrities, could that be argued against? Right. That I, would not. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. It's it's an invention by coincidence. I think is the whole point, which is why I think the answer is probably yes. This holds up decently. Uh, to me, the the only way to really take down the the work here would be to just show an earlier example. But I, this that wasn't the point of this book. I, we'd have to read a, a more wide ranging study of of fame in the world, or you know what I mean, media fame right. or something, and the arts. It would really have to come from the arts, right? Yeah, it would I have would to, and also the as you pointed out, like it during this time as well. It's just like it's the best time to create the idea of celebrity because of the how much more connected it was through the media and and through like actual physical distance is limited because there's telegraphs, there's telephones, there's um, all these other methods of reaching out. For the first time, really widely available, those baseball card things. Right, exactly. So celebrity at this point is is really just developing, and then Oscar Wilde comes in without any, any real skill that anybody knows of except that he's really funny and again i I would point (laughs) to the final chapter the go where you're wanted even when you're not i think was the title of that one he Mm. proves it so incredibly thoroughly but also i'm just left kind of thinking like well this point isn't that interesting yeah he went to like everybody has to comedians i think he names like stand-up comedians have to do it bands have to do it like yeah you have to Mm -hmm. when you're starting out and you want to be a publicly known figure for some talent you have to just work it. You just have to go wherever they'll have you. No discrimination. Like just show up and keep doing it. But it's not, you know, did that deserve 30 pages of, I didn't find it revelatory or anything. It was just kind of like, okay, right. you're, I get the point. He, he went to another one, didn't sell out, went to it like it. Yeah. I don't, I didn't think it was an interesting final point to make, but I can't look at it and say that it, again, I, I just think the word invention here is doing some weird lifting that I didn't, I just didn't interpret it that way. Yeah, there's not going to be a letter of Wilde saying this was my grand project and here were my principles for it. Like this is he's it's a historical reading of this for sure. Yeah. Right. But I yeah, I don't think I left the chapter thinking that it had a huge gap or something that it was missing some key connection or key point. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, none of them can be seriously attributed. I don't uh, that just depends on attribution attributed in terms of explicitness like no i get right but uh, yeah anyway i I think the biggest criticism that could undercut this would just be well show me an er a person who did these tenants earlier right right and upheld them earlier you know i I don't know what the answer would be again it seems hard to imagine given the coincidences of history in this book the the train availability the print you know spread even photography which played a small role or you know a role so. Yeah, big role. I mean, he was endorsing everything without his own knowledge. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, a lot of products uh, stealing his likeness. Yeah, I thought when he critiqued that one, wasn't there someone on a train he saw who was like illegally selling his own stuff? Yeah, yeah. I thought there that was, was like a kid. A, another hilariously ironic moment because I know he admonished the kid just a little bit, but it's 
you know, the 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 person uh, sitting here looking back in time could easily point at him and be like and say this be like, look, your your whole tour is a fraud. You're a fraud right now. Mm-hmm. You haven't done anything good yet. Your best work, you haven't made any of it. <laughs> like you're doing the same thing on a massive scale. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you have one lecture and that's it. And anyway, so I thought that was a nice <laughs> little ironic moment of him critiquing someone for not doing the for not producing the work themselves. When it's like, I don't know, man. This seems. Maybe a little hypocritical. I, I know he had a lecture, but it seems maybe a bit much. Anyway, <laughs> uh, my quote is from the Christian Science Monitor, a website I've not been to in forever, but I think I've read criticism on there before. It's a book review by Bob Bla- Blaisdell, and I only pulled one quote because, again, it was a lot of summary, too. I also really mm-hmm. wanted to pull sources from from the U.K., and they're all paywalled, at least the ones I found. Yeah. I found three book reviews from different publications and they all had aggressive paywalls so i couldn't read them <laughs> but interesting yeah this is the one i found from there for free roy morris um sorry roy morris jr another scholar tackled the same subject less than two years ago in his book declaring his genius oscar wilde in north america but friedman's book is superior on all counts to morris's which bogged down in wikipedia like reflex references friedman is savvy and strong-minded he enjoys and for the most part admires wilde's genius for publicity Friedman always keeps the amazing soon-to-be dazzling author in the forefront even as a thesis about celebrity drives the narrative forward quote he drew the first map of this heretofore unexplored territory in 1882 charting his pilgrim's progress from one hotel suite to another as he talked his way to stardom wild though he had never lectured and only learned on the job discovered what all good teachers know the importance of amusing of amusing himself as a means of retaining his focus so by far the most opinionated part of that review, to be sure. It was mostly a, an account of the work. And I don't know anything about Morris or that book. <laughs> but yeah, but I did think the insights on Friedman's own style, it, it didn't feel bo- too bogged down. Maybe a touch by some of the amount of, um, I don't know if you felt this, but it felt a little bo- I felt a little bogged down reading newspaper quotes, maybe the amount he included. Mm-hmm. But it was still interesting. And I think yeah. the admiration, again, I don't 100% agree with that reading, though I think he's fair to Wilde and does give him credit for something that he was unknowingly inventing, right? I agree. I, actually, I felt like Friedman sometimes was a bit more critical, like almost um, he was snarky sometimes. Mm-hmm in his depict depictions of wild and i was like does he like wild <laughs> uh, yeah so, but then other times he was like you know quite uh, complimentary of wild it, it was yeah back and forth a lot for me i think so as too friedman's treatment of him yeah i think so too and i think i mean the, he didn't the the slavery confederacy comments he didn't let that go on you know he critiqued wild for that and basically right. called him a hypocrite especially considering wild had probably seen a lynching, like according to the documentation, though it's uncommented right. upon. So he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't really let him off for anything. I think it would be the key point. I also can't help but think it would be difficult for any academic, no matter how rapturously they view Wild, especially given the the just the very foundations and the structure of academic work. I don't know anyone who would say I admire someone who made a bunch of money and got famous before doing anything. I just can't fathom mm. that a person would be like, that's a model to live up to. Like, you should go and just 
proclaim yourself a genius before you've done anything <laughs> that just right. fundamentally i just can't imagine which academic would say yes that's how it's done you get your name out there and you get beloved and then maybe you'll get around to doing your genius work eventually which wild did get around to doing <laughs> so thank thanks for that <laughs> um you know thank god for that we have the work too but yeah i just can't imagine he would be too celebratory of a person who lived their life in that order right right so, yeah. No, I yeah, I thought that quote a touch off, but apparently we received or, or read unknowingly the better of those similar works, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what Wikipedia like reflex what is a reflex reference? Like something too casually or too quickly thrown out there? Like maybe he included too many references? I didn't quite get what that meant. I don't, I don't know. It, maybe it's over reference, reference. Maybe he, you know, every, if every sentence has, you know, some data point or something, it becomes, you're not making a clear argument anymore. You're just, you have too much evidence maybe is what it means. I think, which at some point mm -hmm. actually you end up losing, you know, you can lose your argument within overwhelming avalanche or something of evidence, but not a, that's not a, true. Not a turn of phrase I'd seen before, but that's kind of what I assumed it meant. Anyway, mm. That is going to conclude our episode, Amanda. Any final thoughts on Wild in America by David M. Friedman? Uh, no, I know. I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I The only the final chapter before the epilogue, really, I did I flag. Every, every, everywhere else, every other chapter, I, I really quite enjoyed and very readable. He had, he had a nice literary voice, nothing too imposing, but like you said, it was kind of witty at times. He, he had his own fun and... I could read more newspaper clippings if I had to. I, I think I had my fill, but I did enjoy a lot of them. So, <laughs> yeah, pretty fun. Okay, well, that's going to conclude it for us on the Lightly Literary Podcast. We thank you, as always, for listening. Again, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Lightly Literary Podcast, all one word. We do have other books coming up in order. They are Tracks by Louis Erdrich. Church, Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom by Thomas E. Ricks, and Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. We'll be covering those and doing book reviews as always, or book recommendations, sorry, as always, and book clubs to follow those up. So just keep your eye on the feed. We'll keep uploading in the, in the normal cadence here. And as always, we'll see you between the pages. Mm -hmm.